The hosts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. Make no mistake, I am value-oriented in my thinking, both in my daily life and my approach to the market. I look at investments from a risk-reward perspective, and I've found that if you can determine how much downside risk, if you can determine something like that, but if you can determine how much downside risk there is in an investment and build a portfolio around the ownership of companies that you believe have limited downside, then you should do well. You should do especially well if you own growing companies that have limited downside risk. That's what I'm trying to do every week here on the show. I want to help you identify these types of companies so that you can go out and do your own research on them and make the determination on whether you want to own them in your portfolio. When I look at an investment, it's always about how much risk we're taking. How much downside risk is there in that security? And I'll ask myself that three or four times before I even begin to look at the upside potential. I like to think about two simple rules. Rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. One of the keys to investing is not to have a big loser offset your inevitable winners. Thank you and welcome to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman, partner here at the XML Financial Group. If you want to learn more about us and what we do for our day jobs, you can visit us at XMLFG.com. Once again, it's XMLFG.com. And if you're looking for someone to help you plan and invest, well, please consider us. We've been talking about specific ideas lately. So, Today, I want to talk about philosophy. I think it's important every now and again to go back and cover some of the basics of investing. So if you're looking for ideas, we'll go back and look at eh, the past four or five shows. I have some good ideas there. But today, we're going to be talking about philosophy. It really isn't enough to just buy cheap companies. Sometimes they're cheap for a reason. I'll leave that for the deep value folks, you know, those folks who follow the Graham and Dodd philosophy of investing. Deep value is where you go out and you buy a bunch of cheap companies that look cheap based off of different metrics, whether it's price to earnings ratio, PE, or price to book, or what have you. They go out and they buy a bunch of really cheap companies. And historically, this has worked out well over longer periods of time. The problem for me is I just don't have the stomach for it. I can't do it. I think deep value investing is tougher than a $2 stake. You go out and you buy a whole bunch of really cheap businesses, and some of them are going to go kaput. That's why they're cheap. The other ones that don't go kaput, well, they make up for the ones that do. My issue is I don't like losing money. I can't do that. I don't want to see any of my investments go down the tubes. I don't have the intestinal fortitude for it. So my style of investing is a bit different from the deep value folks. 
I like to focus on quality businesses that are growing rapidly, but I still don't want to overpay for them. With that said, qualities is always going to cost you more than something that's of lesser quality. You're going to pay more for a car that starts every morning as opposed to one that has some issues every once in a while when it's cold out, right? The key to all this is doing your homework and being patient, waiting until you can buy your companies at inexpensive prices. It isn't easy and it takes a whole bunch of time. It's just not enough to identify growing free cash flow generating businesses. You need to buy them at the right price. And as I like to say, there are two questions that you ask yourself anytime you're making an investment in the market. Question number one is, what kind of business do I want to own? And question two, which is just as important as one, what price am I willing to pay for that business? Sounds like a common sense approach, right? Let's talk about the markets. Last week, the markets decided to rally because the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, commented about a more gradual rise in interest rates due to the fact that the Fed is close to hitting its goals of full employment and 2% inflation. Those comments saved the market. They saved the market from another down month. And we ended up almost 2% higher for the month on the Dow and the S&P. And the NASDAQ, well, they just it just barely squeaked through. It was up just a bit more than a quarter of a percent. We're still struggling with the same issues that we have been struggling with. Interest rates, the timing of a possible recession. Have we hit a peak in the economy? Have we hit a peak in the earnings growth? The trade war? Over the weekend, the U.S. agreed to temporarily suspend any additional tariffs on China that were scheduled to be implemented in early January. So it seemed like we were making progress. The market loved it. They loved it for a few hours until the realization set in that we really don't know much about it. What do we give? What do we get in return? When does it all start? It's all unclear. And the market doesn't like unclear. So basically, we're back to where we were. I've talked about looking under the hood of the market, and it isn't pretty. December is usually a very strong month. Historically, it's been up 75% of the time. That's according to FactSet. Despite the strong rally last week, 536 NYSE issues hit new 52-week lows, and only 91 hit new 52-week highs. On top of that, less than 50% of S&P issues are trading above their 200-day moving average, and only 38% of the industry groups are defined as being in an uptrend. The last time we saw this type of number was back in the 2015-2016 cyclical bear market. Things don't look pretty from a technical perspective, but we haven't seen the blood in the streets. Investors still aren't showing an elevated level of fear that you usually see at the bottom. So be cautious, be deliberate in your investments, focused on high quality companies 
when they're inexpensive. We need to step away for a minute. When we come back, we're going to be talking about dividends. This is Eric Whiteman for Common Sense Investing, and we are back in just a moment. You've worked hard. You've saved and invested. Now you want to make sure all your hard work pays off. Now's the time to start planning for that future. Hi, this is Eric Whiteman of the XML Financial Group. No two people have the same goals and values. We can help you craft a framework for making a lifetime of smart financial decisions that's right for you. Now's the time to get the advice you deserve. Call us at 301-770-5234. Thank you and welcome back to today's edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman. So glad you could join me today. Let's carry on with today's focus of investing basics from the perspective of how I, as a value investor, see the world. I believe that going forward, there's going to be more of a focus on dividends. On a long-term basis, the total return of a stock comes from four components, This is important to understand. On a long-term basis, the total return of a stock comes from four components, the dividend yield, the growth of the dividend, earnings, and then finally, the speculative part, which is the change in valuation. Together, that's going to to determine what you make on a stock. Now, there are numerous studies that use different time periods and methods for calculating the actual amount of return that dividends are responsible for. And I was going through some old papers and reports the other day that I keep around, and I found a study from a mutual fund company that said from 1802 to 2002, that's a 200-year time period, during that 200-year time period, dividends plus the real growth in dividends accounted for more than 5.8% of the total 7.9% annualized returns. Those numbers are pretty compelling. My big issue with this report is, besides it being a bit dated, is I don't have a 200-year time frame. My point here is that I've never seen a long-term study that says anything different. Dividends do matter over the long term. Now, a focus on dividend payers will naturally lead you to the ownership of my type of companies. And when I say ownership, I mean long-term buy and hold so that you benefit from the growth in the dividend. If you really think about the formula and the fact that maybe 60% of total returns come from dividends, then you'll get focused on what's really important in stock selection. And that is how much cash does a stock generate? In other words, the real earnings called free cash flow because that's what they're able to pay the dividends from. And number two, how predictable are these cash flows? Let's go back to number one. How much free cash flow does a company generate? You can go to a company's annual report or their quarterly earnings report. The internet makes it pretty darn easy for you. Once you have these documents, you want to look at the consolidated statement of cash flow. 
you need to understand how these numbers work on that statement. And it's really simple. You can do it yourself. The way you get free cash flow is net income plus depreciation and amortization because those are non-cash charges. The net income plus depreciation and amortization minus capital expenditures. That's a simple way of doing it. And I would use a three-year average because uh, one year can get distorted. But what I really want to focus this discussion on is number two, how predictable are the free cash flows? You're going to use some common sense here. You're going to look into the future and try to determine what level of free cash flow a company is going to generate in, say, five years. For a food type company, it's pretty easy. Let's take Pepsi, for example, symbol PEP. You've got to figure that management will be reasonably intelligent enough to defend the brand name, and they will. Thus, it is an heroic assumption to figure that free cash flow growth of, say, X percent will occur because population growth plus increased efficiency and maybe even gaining some market share from Coca-Cola or other snack makers. With a bank, it's pretty close to the same thing. Population growth, growth in savings, growth in the economy, that's going to translate into growing free cash flow. With the rails, the railroads, the growth of the economy or GDP is going to detect how uh, predict how rapidly free cash flow is going to grow. But something like Twitter or Facebook, you have no idea. You really have no idea what their cash flow is going to be in five years. And at least in the Twitter's case, you'd have no idea what their business model is really going to look like in the next 24 months. You should be paying much less for these types of companies because of the lack of predictability. If you focus on dividends and free cash flow, it'll lead you to examine the balance sheet. High leverage can divert the cash flow towards debt service instead of paying the dividend. I think this is going to be a problem in the coming years. Businesses have feasted on low-cost debt and leveraged balance sheets and rising rates. Well, they don't mix. By focusing on predictability, it'll cause you to look at all kinds of fundamental factors. For example, a company's competitive position. Is it a low-cost producer or is it a low-cost provider? How much do they spend on R&D and on and on? Another reason to focus on dividends is their spendability. Is that a word? Well, I guess it is now. A reason to focus on dividends is their spendability. You can actually count on them. It can help pay the bills. The stock market can take capital appreciation away from you in five minutes, but the dividend, the dividend's already in your pocket and they can't take that back from you. High dividends also tend to reduce the downside risk, meaning it won't fall very far in a market decline. If the stock market declines 20% and you have a high quality company paying a well-covered four, five, 6% dividend, well, I would think people would be clamoring to buy these types of stocks. Okay, that's about all we have time for today. We'll be back next Wednesday. And until then, remember, it's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow. 
Okay, you've listened to the show. Now it's time for the really good stuff. So listen up. It's the disclosures. The things I talked about during the show, well, they're just my opinion and may or may not necessarily be those of the XML Financial Group. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, no. You should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I'd suggest you get someone who's qualified in these areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, they don't guarantee better results and they don't eliminate the risk of losses. In investing, there are no guarantees. Just because you use these strategies doesn't mean you'll outperform someone or something who doesn't. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.